Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are, what you're about, what you're up to, and thus you show us who we are in you. So as we reflect in these moments, moved by your Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to see the glories of the gospel and to own the gospel as ours, that we might know your love that surpasses everything. We promise in the name of Jesus. So I just thought about it. I think I've referenced just about every Disney film this year in a sermon time or another, so I'm going to round out the year here with Inside Out. I don't know if you guys saw it. Pixar movie came out in 2016, and it's awesome. If you've never seen it, go look it up. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But the, the fun of Inside Out is it imagines the emotional life of a young girl who's going through a significant time of change in her life. And what it imagines going on inside of her and all of us is that there's a control center where the various emotions who are personified inside of her take control at different times. So their emotions are at the command, and if they want to pull this memory up, they hit this button, you know, they're reacting to different things. It's a great movie. And I think one of the appeals of the movie is that it shows us what these emotions that we have all experienced, that we all know, would look like. It imagines what they would look like if they were people. And so Joy, she has blue hair, this really cute pixie cut, she's got this fun green dress, she's exuberant. We've got sadness. She's blue, hair, blue skin. She's dour. She's got a frown on. She's depressed, frumpy. Anger. He's red. Fire shoots out of his head when he gets mad. On the screen, we see these emotions turned into characters. We see these emotions, in a sense, incarnated. Imagine what they would like. People. This week we're talking about Philippians 2. We're talking about when the eternal Son of God took on flesh to be embodied. When the Son of God descended to be one of us. Not just to confirm our ideas about who God is like the creators of Inside Out did with our emotions. But to truly show us who God is. To challenge our ideas of who God is. And at the same time show us who we were created. So this morning we're going to look at the incarnation of Jesus. And that's the big theological word if you want to impress somebody. Incarnation, the time when the eternal Son of God became one of us. And what we're going to do is look at this. I'm going to give you guys the summary of my sermon now. So if I get boring, you can tune out and still get the point. Um, because Jesus is both fully God and fully human, he can bring to us a full salvation. Fully God, fully human, brings to us a full salvation. First, let's talk about how Jesus is fully God. To say that Jesus is fully God means that there was never a time when he was not. The eternal Son of God is not a creation. 
He doesn't belong to what God has made. If, there's a, if you're thinking of two circles and you've got God and His creation, Jesus, as the Son of God, falls on the line of God. He not, does not belong to what God has created. As if the Son of God was a work of His hands. No, He springs from the very being of God. I think that's why we call Him the Son of God. We don't call Him the best creation of God. He's the Son of God. He's just like a Son. He springs from the very being. and is of the same nature of the Father. He's begotten, not made as we confess in the Nicene Creed. God from God. Light from light. The early church wrestled over this because they said, okay, who is Jesus? He's great. How can He be the same as the Father? He's God from God. I talked about it last week. It's God sent from God. It's from the very essence of the Father and of the same power, the same nature. That's what it means in verse 6 in our passage this morning when it says that Jesus was in very nature God. It says that He was equal. Now, we can keep going here and it feel like a theological lecture about the nature of who Jesus is. But I think one of the things that this shows us about who God is is that God, at the core of who He is, is this eternal relationship of love to Father, Son, and Spirit. The abundance of the life of God cannot be contained inside of one person, but it's one God in three persons. And it's this eternal relationship of love and joy between the Father, Son, and in spirit. Early Christians started calling God a trinity, a triunity, for this very reason, to hit at this. Because the eternal being of God is this abundance of life and love in these relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit. God is not incomplete. God was not ever lonely. He didn't decide to make creation because He needed somewhere to direct His love, to make Him whole. At the core of who God is, he is at peace within himself. He needs nothing. He finds all he needs from the abundance of his own life. And it's from that abundance of life and being that Jesus can truly offer us salvation and grace. The invitation in the gospel is not just to know this as a theoretical fact to impress people with some knowledge about what Trinity means or God in three persons, and the Son and the Father being of the same essence. The glories of knowing this is the invitation for us to find the abundance of the life that belongs to God as our source of life and confidence as well. Because this is what is offered to us in Jesus. A source of life that will not run out. A well that will not give us water for just a season and eventually dry up. When we come to Jesus by faith, this is what we gain access to. Our salvation at its core is not just a good gift or even the best gift. Salvation for us is God giving us Himself. We are united to Him by faith and God has moved heaven and earth, worked beyond our ability to comprehend and make sense of. And He's done this not because He needs anything, not because we make Him whole, but solely because He has set His affection. He didn't look down and find qualifications in us and say, okay, well, they are going to do this thing or that thing, and so I'll love this person. I'm going to love them because they're going to prove uh, something to me. No, out of the overflow and the abundance of his self-satisfaction, 
out of the abundance of who He is, it spills over to us. And it's offered to us. For that to become our source of confidence. For that be the reservoir that we draw upon. For that to be our spiritual nourishment. He doesn't just love us. He is love. And He has pointed who He is to us. His very self for our good. And that's what it means to say Jesus is fully God. It's not just a theoretical knowledge thing. In His incarnation, He shows us who God is. And God is this overflowing fountain of abundance and life that is ours by faith. And that's what God brings to us. That brings me to my next section, God, Jesus is fully man. Because there's another side to the incarnation. It's not just Jesus showing us who God is. He's the perfect representative of who God is, of course. But He's also, in His incarnation, He becomes the perfect presentation of who we should be. The perfect representation of humanity. Pursuing what is good, what is beautiful, what is true. Our passage speaks to this in verses 7 and 8. Notice it says that Jesus took on the very nature of a servant. This is the exact same description of the divine nature in verse 6. That Jesus was, uh, by nature, equal with God, the Father. Well, here He is one of us. He takes on a human nature. The eternal Son of God entered time. He takes to Himself a human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And the Son of God, fully God in every way, becomes fully man. And joined in His person forever. Joined in the person of Jesus. is the fullness of God and the fullness of humanity. We sing about this. We just did. And Mark the Herald Angels sing. Notice, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, with men to dwell, Jesus our man. But the New Testament just doesn't just speak of this as Jesus becoming one of us, as if, like, God's on this exploratory mission. Like, God didn't know what it was like to be a human being, so he's going to become a human being, and he's going to, like, Star Trek, they would go to the uh, a planet to figure stuff out. Now it speaks of it also as this, that Jesus in becoming the incarnated Son of God in the flesh becomes the fountain and the foundation of the new beginning. A second Adam. And here's what that means. You look back at Genesis 2 and 3, the very first created man, Adam. Rebelling against God. He rejected God. And he forfeited so much in that rebellion against God and because of that, he, as a fountain, as the head, as the first of humanity, has handed down as an inheritance to us marred natures. Our natures are bent and turned in toward ourselves and selfishness. And, and, and bent in and toward, toward sin. He's handed down to us guilt. He's handed down to us death. He's like a poisoned fountain that poisons everything else that touches. When Jesus comes, though, comes as a new foundation, a new fountain for humanity, a new Adam, as it were. And he offers obedience to God, not disobedience. He lives in righteousness. He succeeds in all the ways that Adam failed and that we fail. And he becomes, like Adam, a fountain, a foundation for new humanity. But what springs from him is not death, it's not guilt, it's not further sin and marred natures. What springs from Jesus as this new fountain is the love of God and righteousness to us. 
So when we come to Jesus by faith, we are invited to leave behind the old man, that's New Testament terminology, of Adam. Who, in a sense, was our father and the, the, the blueprint of who we would become. Living in, in, in hostility, even toward God. We leave behind the old man, Adam, with the same instruction. And we walk into the new man, Jesus. Jesus is the new fountain of who we are. And he shows us what it means to be truly human. He shows us what it means to pursue human flourishing. To pursue the good, the beautiful, and the true. So do you want to know what it means to be truly human? I think we all do. What it means for us to live lives of flourishing. You want to know what it matters for us to pursue? What does it mean to be truly human? What did Jesus? What did he pursue? Read the Gospels. He pursued people. Jesus didn't have a set of agendas or I should say, rather, all his agendas were people-oriented. His obedience to the Father was for the benefit of those that God had given him, for our benefit. He put his time and attention and his resources all toward not building wealth. Um, from the perspective of like a, a Dave Ramsey, Jesus was an idiot. He was terrible. He was terrible with money. <laughs> By when Jesus needed the money to pay the temple tax to go and worship, he didn't have any. He had to do a miracle and pull out some coins from a fish's mouth. He was terrible with money by our standards, I should say. I don't want to say Jesus was terrible with anything. But that's not where his attention, his time, and his resources were put to. He didn't see wealth building as something even worth pursuing. Not as a core foundation or, or, or goal for life. He couldn't care less about that. He didn't build a reputation or a platform. He called the wrong people to himself. His disciples were not educated in, in our sense. They didn't come with their degrees and certification. They had not been trained right. They were impressive. Jesus was single. Jesus was single. Jesus was homeless. Jesus was childless. He was poor. Now, I'm not saying that to say romantic relationships are bad. I'm married. Children aren't bad. I have one, and I adore him. Homes aren't bad. I also have one of those. Financial stability is not a bad thing. But what Jesus shows us is that the pathway to living and flourishing and what it means to be human is not found in finding you know, Mr. Right or Miss Perfect. It's not found in how much money we can accumulate or how big our house is. It's not found in how our children uh, are and how well they behave or fulfill our dreams for what they are. That's not what true human flourishing is. True human flourishing is finding our source of life and strength in God. A life lived under the echo of the words that were pronounced upon Jesus you are my child, and with you I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his public ministry, this was the, the word that God pronounced on him. You are my son, and with you I am well pleased. And as we are baptized in Jesus Christ, these are the words that are in turn pronounced upon us. And that becomes the foundation of our life. 
the foundation of human flourishing. Not chasing wealth, not chasing reputation, popularity, or degrees, or anything like that. But the foundation of this. You are my son, you are my daughter, and with you, I am well pleased. You, I am well pleased. We are invited by God to own that on the front you would hear those words, with you I am well pleased, and think that that's a, a declaration of judgment that would come after a long-lived life, right? Like you would live your whole long life and die, and then you would hope to hear, you are my child, you proved it, and with you I am well pleased. But just in the same way that it was pronounced upon Jesus before he had even entered his public ministry, before he had even started teaching, it is pronounced upon us at our baptism beginning of our Christian life, whether we are baptized as a six-month-old infant or a 99-year-old man, it's pronounced and we get it out the gate. You are my son. You are my daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. The Father delights over us. That is the foundation of true human flourishing, of pursuing what it means to be truly human. To say it clearly, true human flourishing is not found in circumstances like being married or single, being a parent or childless, being rich or well thought of. It's not found in, in, in any of those things. True human flourishing is a relationship of living in the shining light of God's affections for you. That's what Jesus, holy man, shows us. And that's what Jesus, as the second Adam, in the words of the New Testament, offers to us. The opportunity to live our lives day in and day out the shining light of God's affections for you. He adores you. He moved heaven and earth to find you and to free you and to bring you to himself. And he's not looking forward to this eternity where he's got to spend all this time with you like you. I like him if these things get on my nerves. No. I mean, if we can even imagine God's expectation of the future, which is weird to even think about, He imagines delight. Delight. Book of Hebrews speaks about Jesus walking into the suffering that He was going to face at the cross. And the reason He could do it was because of the joy set before Him. And what was the joy set before Him? Us. He could enter that suffering and that pain. He could enter what He knew He was going to face and dreaded and feared because he knew on the other end was us. And part of God's delight, part of Jesus' delight in eternity is he's going to see us fully healed, fully made new. And he'll never get sick. He'll never get sick. So, Jesus is fully God. He shows us who God is. He's fully man. He shows us who we were created to be and what it means to be fully human. And because he's fully God, he's fully man. He offers to us the full salvation. That's my third assumption. Jesus is not 50% human and 50% God. If he was only half human or only half pretending to be a human being, then salvation that he won for us would only be a half salvation. Because there would only be half of who we are that had been redeemed. Early church caught on to this. In fact, there's an early church uh, father, pastor, Irenaeus. Second, I mean, he lived like the two generations removed from Jesus in the early church. And he said, what is not assumed, what is not taken on by Jesus in his incarnation is not yours. 
But because he has become fully human, he offers to us a full healing. We experience some of it in the here and now, but the promise of it in the new heavens and the earth. Because he became 100% human, taking to himself a human nature completely like ours, he's fully able to redeem us. For all that he has, has assumed as one of us, he's healed and is redeemed. We sing about this in the third verse of Heart of the Herald Angels Sing. Look at it again. We sang it earlier. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men and more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. The eternal Son of God became one of us that the power of death may be fully overcome. That we may rise to newness of life. That we may toss off the rags that we wear stained by our own sin and the sins of others against us. And put on Jesus and walk in His worthiness every day to wear and own His worthiness. And to be assured that this salvation isn't just a false hope that makes us feel good about ourselves today. That it's a full salvation. That we are forgiven in full of the penalty of sin. In full. There is no sin that you have committed or will commit that is outside the purview of God's forgiveness. Period. There is no wrath or condemnation waiting for you in the future. Come to Jesus by faith, it's gone. No wrath, no condemnation. Period. We're being freed of the power of sin. The good news of that is we do not belong to our selfish and disordered desires. That the chains that hold us, that seem so powerful, the struggles that we keep uh, failing in over and over, they've truly lost their permanence. And no matter how, feel, how strong they feel right now, there is an end date, there is a death date to your struggles. It's the promise of this full salvation. And the promise of the new heavens and new earth is that we will even be freed of the presence of sin. Not just the penalty, not just the power in our own hearts. We will be freed of even the presence of sin that has marred the things that God has made, has marred the things that we love. I could keep going on and on about this. And in fact, we'll be hearing from this very passage one more time next week, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. But I want to leave this morning with it imprinted on our imaginations by reading an excerpt from a short story called The Rag Man. I think I've read it before. But it hits at this idea that Jesus, fully God and fully man, has come to offer us his salvation. Before the dawn on Friday morning, I noticed a young man walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart through the clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags! Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags. Rags. I followed him. My curiosity drove me and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his heart. Quietly he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, Pampers, give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shone. She blinked from the gift to the giver. 
Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He took her stained handkerchief to his own face. And he began to weep. To sob as grievously as she had done with shoulders shaking. Yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky broke, showed gray behind the rooftops, I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows. The ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty, blood soaked her bandage, a single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me a rag, he said, tracing his own line on the cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own Rags, rags, I take your own rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong ragman. After that, he found a drunk, lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched and sick. He took that blanket, he wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk man, he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old and sick, yet he went at a terrible speed. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I need to see where he was going in such a haste, perhaps to know what drove him. The little old ragman, he came to a landfill. He came to garbage pits, and I waited to help him in what he did, but I hung back. I he climbed a hill with a tormented labor. He cleared a little space on that hill, and then he sighed. He laid down. He pillowed his hand on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried and witnessed that death. I slumped in a junk car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the right man. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. And I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning I was awakened by violence. Light. Pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face. And I blinked and I looked and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman. Folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead but alive, and besides that healthy, there was no sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then he took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with a dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman. The ragman, the Christ. Friends, Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and he brings to us a full salvation. Trust me.
Father, thank you for the glories of the gospel. I never tire to think on these things. I feel like I preach the same sermon every week, but it's because I can't, I, I don't know what else to talk about. Thank you. I, I, we revel in your grace, God, for it is beyond our understanding. Thank you that you have sought us out. It stretches beyond our minds with the ability to comprehend of you sending your Son to become one of us, to free us, to show us what it means to really pursue what matters, and to give us the promise and the hope that the final word about us will be grace, grace, grace. So thank you. Thank you for the salvation you've upon our hearts. Guide us more and more in living unto the greatest of the